This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 35. Justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, we are going to be talking about Action Comics number 967 and Superwoman number four, both from November 9th of 2016. But first, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. So those of you that have been listening to the show for a while will know that I subscribe to a kind of what would Superman do philosophy. And I articulate that philosophy as truth, justice, and hope, hence the name of the show. And I've talked about hope a lot in these segments because I, one of the ways I define hope is overcoming anxiety and depression. And, you know, it's also the hope for a better tomorrow, but it's also more of a personal journey for me. And I've talked about justice a lot in terms of, you know, Things wanting to be better in society in general. You know, those who who commit wrongdoings, getting their consequences, and those who are being unjustly wronged, finding, you know, some justice in the world. And the one thing I haven't really talked about that much is truth, which is partly ironic because for me, that's kind of the whole linchpin. Because truth, justice, and hope for me is about constantly working on being a better person. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure you're not doing anything that you have to lie about later. If you're doing something that you don't want people to find out about, whether it's your partner or your boss or your kids or the law... (laughs) then you're not being truthful, honestly. You're not doing, well, let me take that back. You're you're setting yourself up to not be truthful. And therefore, if you avoid doing anything you have to lie about, then you are on the path of truth, which is very important to me. And it's such a challenging time to try to walk a path of truth because we live in what the media has dubbed a post-truth world. We live in a time where when some people are confronted with with in unimpeachable facts, you know, undeniable facts that they will seek out information that backs up their confirmation bias and call it alternative facts. So the truth has always been somewhat subjective. Um, but now, so some people would claim more so than ever, you know, if you have a, a definition of truth being 
you know, reality lines up with what the actual provable facts are, that's one thing. But if your definition of reality is it's whatever I think it should be, then you leave yourself open to a wide range of subjective interpretations. And we live in a world where the the leader of a of a or the ostensible leader of a conspiracy minded authoritarian cult has their own um, social network, an alternative to Twitter, where the 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 platform that's used to send out conspiratorial messages isn't referred to as tweets; they're referred to as truths. So it's you know an, an Orwellian um, inversion of what truth really means. But that's why I think it's so important to stay true to the truth, right? Because if you are if you if you are honest with yourself, which is a bigger component of the truth, if, if you can't lie to yourself, it's hard to live in a subjective alternative fact reality. And that's one of the biggest components of um, also of the component of hope being a vehicle for uh, recovering from depression and anxiety because you have to be true with, true with yourself. You have to be honest with what your expectations are, with your own faults, your own flaws. And because if you can't see where you've done wrong in the past, then you can't actively set us out, set, set about making things right. And again, that's a big, um, that's a big thing for me. I, I want to constantly improve myself. I have periods of my life that I'm not proud of, and I'm constantly trying to balance the scales in, in the correct direction. And I often kind of punctuate these, these thoughts with how it might relate to Superman. I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to take a very different uh, track, and I'm going to refer to the recent Sandman Netflix series. Now, I will be honest up front. I have read very little of Sandman. I've read the first trade, and I've read the first issue of the second trade. So I've read up through issue seven. And that was a while ago. It was enough that uh, when I saw things in the series that were based on those issues, I'm like, oh, I recognize this and I recognize what, what was similar about it and I recognize what was different about it. And then it's you know, so good, it inspired me to keep reading. And so I have not read the issues about the serial convention. Um, and so I don't know how well this, this show lines up with the comic on this, but something from the show that I really like, something that really resonated with me. And if you haven't watched the show yet and you haven't read the comics and you don't want spoilers, you might want to skip ahead. But at the end of the issue where uh, Sandman Morpheus uh, tracks down his mm, ostensible nemesis at a serial killer convention, he, the gift he gives to all the attendees is truth. He removes the self-delusion 
that they have wrapped themselves in to give themselves the confirmation bias that what they are doing is just, that what they're doing is right, and what they're doing is good. It removes their delusions that they are the real victims or that, you know, or that they are chosen, you know, divinely chosen to go out and choose victims or whatever it is that enables them psychologically to do what they do to enjoy it. And he takes that away from them. And the series ends with some of the attendees turning themselves into the police, uh, some putting themselves out of their own misery. And I think that's really powerful because, again, it's the lies that people tell themselves that let them justify doing awful things to other people. And so if, you know, even if the world at large is obsessed with the idea of alternative truths, if we stay true to ourselves, then we are at least a, an unmovable rock in the sea of that kind of turmoil of untruth. And that's all the thoughts I have about that. So with no further ado, let's go talk about some comics. All right. Once again, we are going to be starting our comic book journey this week with Action Comics number 967, released November 9th of 2016. Let me zoom in on the credits here. It is written by Dan Jurgens with art by Tyler Kirkham. Brad Lee is the letterer and Arif Prianto is the colorist. Clay Mann and Brad Anderson with Dan Jurgens did the main cover and Gary Frank with Barrett, excuse me, Brad Anderson did the variant cover. And the main cover is of Clark and Lex, both with civilian clothes on over their respective uniforms, pulling their shirts open. Clark revealing his Superman S, Lex revealing his appropriated Superman S with his armor, and both of them saying, this is a job for, and they're giving each other the side eye. And one thing that's really neat about this cover is that the, the face that, um, that man drew for Clark doesn't exactly look like Henry Cavill, but it looks very close to Henry Cavill. And Lex, I don't think really looks like anybody famous, but maybe he looks a little bit like Mark Strong. Um, but it's pretty good. It's a really good cover. The variant is really neat. And I don't know if I necessarily like it better, but it's very cool. So it's with Clark and Lex standing on top of a building. And in the background, there are several buildings of Metropolis destroyed. Like there's one on the far left where the entire top of the building is blown off and there's smoke billowing out of it and there's more smoke billowing from everywhere and the clouds are dark yellowish gray with smoke and then Lex in his Superman armor is standing on the edge of the building with his arms up and wide and smiling like yes I am in fact your savior Commander Taggart will save us um, but it, I, I love the irony of this uh, of this cover with 
It's like, yes, m most of Metropolis has been destroyed, but I am here for you peasants. Very good cover. So before we get into the details of the issue, let's do a little bit of recap. As I stop and sip some coffee, I like my coffee black with a half a teaspoon of sugar in my Superman mug. So this is a story of our re in our recap of three Clarks, two Loises, one Lex, and a guy in a red hat. Now, as we know, the Clark and Lois and their young son, John, that we are following are from the pre-Flashpoint universe. And when they came to the post-Flashpoint universe, roughly 10 years ago, um, story-wise, they laid low because there already was a Clark Kent and there already was a Lois Lane in that universe. In that universe's Clark Kent was also Superman. And their need to lay low was especially reinforced when New 52 Lois outed New 52 Clark as Superman, which is a story that I have not gotten to yet. I am working my way up much faster, well, not a whole lot faster, but still more fast than I was through the New 52 universe. I am honestly skimming a lot of it. Um, it's not really my cup of tea, but there is some stuff I'm really interested to get to, like, especially as we're going to know it at the end of this issue, the Dark Side War. And I want to get to the whole exposing of that Clark's identity and the whole arc where he loses his powers and all that stuff. It sounds really, really interesting, especially since Gene Luen Yang is going to be taking over at least one of the books. But I know that I have to go through, uh, through a writer who I don't particularly enjoy to get to it. But anyway, back to the recap. Um, after New 52 Superman died, our Clark began operating in public for the first time in this universe as Superman. And coinciding with this, we had the mysterious appearance of another Clark Kent. Now, after a battle with, uh, with Doomsday, where Lex also appeared in his Superman-themed armor for the first time, doing he's, Lex has been doing kind of an anti-villain thing. Since the New 52, since the, uh, oh, whatchamacallit, the, the thing with the Earth 3 bad guys. I don't know. I haven't gotten to that yet. It sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to getting to it. But he's, he's doing good stuff for maybe not the right reasons, but he's ostensibly a good guy right now. And uh, after that whole thing with Doomsday and Lex, our Superman and that Clark have a heart-to-heart -heart at the Fortress of Solitude, where it was revealed that, or the the other Fortress of Solitude, the one in the Himalayas or wherever it is, where it was revealed that the other Clark is fully human and a psi, in a like psychic scan of his mind showed that he believes himself to be fully human and that he has memories similar to those of our Clark, though with some differences. Like he wasn't from Krypton, but he was in fact orphaned and was raised by the Kents. Now, that Clark gave the cover story that the New 52 Superman was just pretending to be him when he was outed by Lois because this mysterious other Clark was in hiding from a, a ne'er-do-well company called Genetikron that we, the readers, and our Superman know were also in possession of a 
caged doomsday, which did not turn out well for them. And when uh, our Superman and this other Clark went to go investigate Geneticron, they found that the building had disappeared and our Superman has since tracked it to the Amazon. Meanwhile, our Lois has discovered that the new 52 Lois has also died and she has inserted herself at new 52 Lois's request into her life. And so she is doing a very precarious balancing act of trying to act on what she knew from her old life versus what is different about new 52 Lois's life. And one last bit, um, at the mysterious other Clark's press conference where he reintroduced himself to the world, there was a guy there in a red hat that we've been following along with, and he has revealed himself to be a guy who has a partner, and they have these big hulking dudes in sci-fi armor that are tracking down someone for something to do with Apocalypse and Superman. So, so whew, that's a lot of recap. So as we go into the story, it opens with this amazing splash page of the Earth sometime in the future, and it is covered with Apocalypse and fire pits, and the moon in its orbit is cracked into quarters, and there are dead astronauts floating around, and there's a shattered uh, space station, and we see Green Lanterns, Simon Baz, and Jessica Cruz floating dead in space. From there we go to Earth, and we see Metropolis on fire, and we see the Justice League dead, and everyone that's dead, it looks completely desiccated. So they, they've either been dead for a while, or they've had the life force sucked out of them, or something. But we see Cyborg, and Flash, and Aquaman, and Wonder Woman, and somebody else in the background who's wearing kind of a, like a like a ugly brownish yellow costume with blue boots and blue gloves. I don't know who that's supposed to be. Maybe Animal Man? But Animal Man's costume doesn't look like that anymore, so I don't know. And then we see um, the parademons gather around where a boob, boom tube opens, and a figure steps through, and all we see of that figure as they emerge is from behind them, and we see that they're wearing <coughs> excuse me, a billowing red cape and that is a vision that red hat guy has had of the future and red hat guy is no longer wearing his red hat and he no longer looks human he now has he's very tall he's very muscular he has gray skin and slightly pointed ears and long kind of reddish hair and he's wearing a black and white and reddish armor the big side pistol and then this face mask with big red goggly eyes and his name we find out is is lacall l apostrophe c-a-l-l -L. it might be l call but i'm going to say lacall because it's just easier to say and he has a partner named zaid and zaid is even bigger than lacall is and he also has grayish white skin and kind of pointy ears but he's much bigger and his hair is kind of whitish blonde with orange streaks in it. And he has these things that kind of look like tusks that come out from his cheeks and his, and his uh, jaw. 
and he has big cloven feet and he is also wearing armor and his armor is uh, black and well it's it's also black and white and red but just in different combinations it's more black and gray than anything really and he has energy crackling all through it looks like cracks in the armor around his hands and they are on some kind of floating platform high above metropolis and lacal is saying that this is his vision of earth's future and that of untold others unless they act and um and Zaid, the big guy, says, we're going to execute him here. And Lakal says, yes, this will be his final mission. And Zaid said, no, Lakal, the Slayer of Gods cannot stop. And Zaid is very tired. And he has a lot of guilt for actions he's done. And he just wants to rest. And But before he can finish that sentence, he senses their target. He senses the location. And he says, the laws of the remnants authorize us. Prepare for battle. But before we go to their battle, we go to where John and Clark are hanging out in the Amazon. And there's a very cute page on the splash page where the credits are, where John is holding up a, he's holding up his phone and he's taking a picture of, he has, he, he's holding up a photo he's taken of Clark in the black and silver costume that he wore during the Dan Jurgens Lois and Clark miniseries from just before uh, Rebirth, uh, which I did, which I covered on episodes four through, I'm sorry, two through five of this show, if you want to go check that out. And next to where Clark is standing there in his black and silver suit that I call the stealth suit and what McFarlane Toys calls the, the, the solar suit for some reason. There is a picture of Clark's classic costume laying out on the bed. And John is saying, hey, Dad, why don't you wear one of these? You should have stuck with the black suit or gone back to the old one with the undies on the outside. So there's Jurgens, you know, acknowledging the old trope of Superman wearing his underwear on the outside of his costume. Ha 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 ha. And maybe enjoying that joke. Maybe that's why they switch suits. I suspect they switch suits because it matches the one worn by Henry Cavill and Man of Steel and the rest of the Snyder movies, except for the fact of the boots being blue. But maybe, maybe, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I acknowledge that the trunks don't always translate well to live action, but I'm still a big fan of the trunks in illustration. And, and Clark's like, it's not underwear, John. It was part of the suit, a decorative element, all sewn together in one piece. And John says, it looks like undies to me. And so Clark goes into about how, where he was acting incognito when New 52 Superman was still alive. He needed the black suit to be more stealthy. And um, when he began operating in public as Superman. He had the Fortress of Solitude create his current outfit for him, and he intentionally designed it to look more like the suit that New 52 Superman wore, which did not have trunks, to make himself more familiar to the people of the post-Flashpoint universe, which makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I would have loved it if he'd gone straight back to the classic suit when he reappeared, but there is a good narrative explanation for it, which I do appreciate. 
And so John and Clark are trudging through the Amazon. They're actually not trudging. They're on, they're walking on like these huge branches, like, like Tarzan from that Disney movie through the jungle and pick Clark's picking up old trees and throwing it out of the way. And there's not an in-story explanation for this. I don't think maybe they'll come back to it, but there's a mosquito here or something that looks like a cross between a butterfly and a mosquito. And I don't know if it's a perspective issue, like, like it's supposed to be really close to the camera and John and Clark are supposed to be farther away, but it looks like this, this insect is next to John's head and it's bigger than his head. So maybe this will be something they double back to, that the presence of the Genetocron building is mutating the animals around them, or maybe, um, maybe Kirkham just made an artistic choice. It's neat. I don't have a problem with it. I, I'm just old and like explanations for my stuff. But anyway, um, and John is asking him, it's like, boy, may, being Superman must be hard because you don't get any money for doing it. And you, there's so much that needs to be righted in the world. You'd think you'd be working 24-7. And Clark is like, well, I, I don't do it for the money. I do it because it's the right thing to do. And yes, it is difficult to balance my responsibilities as Superman with my responsibilities to you and your mom to just try to have a normal life. And John also goes into about the super hearing because John's super hearing has been kicking in and like he can hear all the mosquitoes in the jungle and he can just barely tone it out. But Clark tells him, you'll, you'll get the hang of it. It's, it's like when you learn to focus on what's the most important and drying everything else out. And John's like, oh, you mean like when I'm playing video games and mom talks to me, but I hear the words, but I don't hear what they are. And Clark's like, don't tell your mom you said that. But they find the Genetocron building. It's smack in the middle of the jungle. They don't know why it's there. They don't know how it got there. And Clark is especially worried because, one, the, the doomsday that they fought in the first six issues of this series is implied to be the pre-Flashpoint doomsday. Like, Clark and Doomsday recognized each other, or at least that's the impression we get. Or if not, it's an exact duplicate without any um, like multiple reality deviations, right? Um, now, the big difference, I mean, there was a lot of things that happened with Doomsday after um, Jurgens left the book in the 2000s, which I feel like really diluted the... the the overall impact of Doomsday. But I think Jurgens is kind of ignoring that, which is understandable. Um, but, it's like, you know, one, if that's the Doomsday from the previous universe, how did they get it? And two, why did they have it? And so um, they, they, as they go to fly into the building, we switch back over to Metropolis, where Lois and mysterious other Clark are at the LexCorp building. Now, Lex has recently bought the Daily Planet. And Lois, again, is back working for the Daily Planet. She's taken New 52 Lois's place without anyone else realizing it. And one thing that uh, Lex had asked New 52 Lois to do 
was to write a book about him. And so she's there dropping off some papers that he wanted and other Clark shows up dropping off some papers that Clark wanted from him. And while they're there, Lex walks in and uh, Lex dismisses Clark pretty quickly. He's like, okay, thank you, Kent. You can go. Lois, come with me. And he takes her into his lab. And he's like, well, if you're going to be writing a book about me, you better know everything. There. Or It's not a book, but it's an interview, uh, an article. And so she, he takes her into his lab, and there he has his Superman armor in a big glass, like, back-to-tank-looking thing. And there's these robot arms that are coming down, and they're tinkering with it. And there's a mother box floating in front of it. And she's like, wow, this is impressive. And he's like, I'm surprised you sound you say that because since you've been here before. And so Lois has to do some quick thinking. I was like, oh, yeah, but that was before you had this armor. That's what I meant. And he's like, oh, okay. And so um, she asked him immediately, why do you want to be known as Superman? And here we go into a variation of what we've been getting from Lex since the early post-crisis days, or at least since... Mm, the late 90s, I would say, where Lex's big beef with Superman is that he's not human, and that humans, in his opinion, deserve a champion who is also human. And um, he goes on about how he and the general public did not trust uh, New 52 Superman when he first appeared. That Superman earned the people's trust over time, and this new Superman, we don't know him. He's obviously not the same guy. He looks a little different. Um, but he won't say where he's from. He won't say who he is. And we don't know what his motivations are. And she says, well, can't you just trust the fact that he's there to help? And he says, well, we don't know that as fact. We know that as supposition. And uh, Lex goes on about how He's the ultimate self-made man. He grew up penniless. He suffered terrible abuse. Um, and that he and his sister, Lena, persevered despite that abuse. And Lois is like, well, I'd love to interview Lena. Where can I get a hold of her? And she's like, well, she's indisposed at the moment. And those of you who have been listening to the show on the episodes where I talk about the Superwoman uh, series will be familiar with Lois's status from that. And uh, something we'll talk about shortly. And so Lex shows her what he's been doing with the armor. And he's used his mother box, which Lois did not instantly recognize as the mother box. But when he when Lex opens up the containment thing that it's in, the mother box, instead of going ping, 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 is going Lex, 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 Lex. And empowers it. And then a huge, like, Iron Man, Unibeam-style... Uh, force beam comes out of the chest plate and it hits a huge uh, concrete block and it seems to disintegrate it but it transports it away to uh, he sends it and he, does, he sends it to Nevada and uh, and that is when Lois recognizes it as a boom tube and that Lex has a mother box and he does something that at first I thought was really neat he taps a button on his armor, the armor disappears, and he says, spatial reallocation, it's now entirely contained in my wristwatch. So it sounded to me like it's been 
like kind of digitized and teleported inside of his wristwatch. It's kind of like the kind of like the Flash's suit, right? Which does which ne- which has never made any sense, but we in the comic book community just accept it. But before Lex can go on, there's a huge scoom and the entire wall of his lab blows away and Lex falls out. He's tumbling seemingly to his death. Lois grabs a beam that's sticking out of the wall, but Lex very calmly presses a button on his watch and his suit begins to materialize around him. Now, I think if this had a different visual effect, I would like it better, but it looks like it's growing on him, kind of like the Iron Man nanotech armor from the MCU, which is, I feel like, a really overplayed idea. And I don't know... I think by the time this came out, the, 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 what's it called? The nanotech armor hadn't appeared in the movies yet. I don't think so. I think he still had to like stand still while it like folded itself around him. But yeah, I just, I just don't love that. I like, if it had appeared on him, like, you know, the big explosion of energy and now suddenly he's wearing his armor, that would be a little cooler in my opinion. But anyway. But uh, other Clark shows back up. He helps Lois climb up out of the hole. And as Lex soars up into the air in his armor, saying it's time for war, other Clark says, something tells me this is going to be nasty. I'm calling him. And he activates the signal watch that our Superman gave him when they had their sit-down heart-to-heart. So back in the Amazon... Um, Clark and John are poking around the Geneticron building and they see this huge uh, kind of rectangular container that was originally containing uh, Doomsday very poorly. And then a bunch of pods that look like they're made out of glass and they've all been shattered open and whatever is in those has escaped as well. And I don't know what the deal is with that. Like I've said before, I after a while I kind of end up skimming over this era, and uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people don't love the Bendis era. I kind of love the Bendis era by now, and I read that much more in depth than I read these. Um, <laughs> sorry if you're if you're not a Bendis lover, eventually you're going to get to a point of this podcast where you're just going to be rolling your eyes every episode. Um, but I like it anyway. But whatever, so there's a whole bunch of lab escapees. But before they can figure out what's going on with that, Clark hears the zeet, zeet, zeet of the signal watch. And he grabs John and he goes flying. So back in Metropolis, uh, Lex is hovering in there in the air, looking around, trying to figure out what's going on. And this huge blast comes out of nowhere from it with a shract and slams into him. And Lex is saying, another sneak attack. Cowards don't have the guts to face me man to man. But then Lacal slams into Lex from the back. And as John and Clark come flying near the planet to figure out what's going on, uh, Zade comes out of nowhere and slams into Superman. And Clark drops John, but luckily they're right over the Daily Planet building. So John lands on his feet on top of the building. And Zade is flying off with Clark with these huge jet boots that fit around his hooves. And uh, Zade says, you wear the mark of the destroyer. Boss said you'd come. 
So it's ironic that Lex has appropriated Superman's symbol, but these two associate the symbol with Lex and think that Clark is imitating Lex, which is kind of funny and ironic. So on another building, Lex and Lacal go slamming down on top of it. It's, on, it's actually on top of the LexCorp building. And Lacal is beating the tar out of Lex. He's kicking him in the, his, the one part of his body that is not covered by armor, which is his head and his face. He kicks him in the face with an armored boot. And then he punches him, punches him in the mouth with an armored glove. And Lacal is saying, I know who you are, what you are, the throne you'll inherit, the scourge you'll become, the world you'll annihilate. I am Lacal, the God Slayer. I know all these things. And he pulls a sword from off of his back. And then we see this holographic image, or it's supposed to be, you know, what Lacal knows. And it's being projected just for us, the reader. And we see an image of Lex in his dark side armor. From the JL, from the Justice New Fifty Two Justice League Dark Side War, sitting on a throne, surrounded by kneeling uh, parademons with a mother box hovering nearby him, saying "Lex, Lex, 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 Lex." And Lacal has his sword out now, and he's moving towards Lex with a decapitating gesture about his body, saying, "The future is clear. You are destined to take Dark Side's place." For the sake of your victims-to-be, I sentence you to death. And that is how the issue ends. So this is a pretty good issue. Um, I, th- I don't think I'm alone in saying that between Action Comics and Eponymous Superman that I prefer the Eponymous Superman book more. Um, and I think it's just a matter of... Tomasi and Gleason having a fresher take. And while I really, really appreciate Jurgens, one of the things that I've noticed is the people, the writers who were create who were creating comics from my youth, um, as I get older, their stuff does not feel as fresh when put into a modern context. And that's no fault of theirs. It's just a matter of evolving creative style and sometimes an artist's writing style does, doesn't match evolving artistic styles and so forth and so on and so as much as I like Jurgens, it does feel slightly outdated but it's still really good right and I'm I thought that was a roundabout way of saying I don't like this writer as much but I'm enjoying this book nonetheless and one thing I really appreciate about this is even though Jurgens created the character of John Kent by having him give, you know, Lois giving birth to him during Convergence, and then he wrote the eight-part miniseries where we see John grow from a baby to a 10-year-old, this book has spent very little time with John. He's just kind of a background character. So it's good to see a lot of John in this issue because the eponymous Superman book by Tomasi and Gleason, that's more about the family vibe. This is, this book has kind of been about Superman struggling with his ethics and balancing the need for secrecy 
with being the paragon of truth and justice. But, uh, and also a lot of it has been about Jurgens reintroducing elements from his run back in the 90s, which, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. Pretty good. And I think it also fits a larger purpose of DC trying to show how the pre-Flashpoint and post-Flashpoint continuities are blending together. So this, it all serves a purpose. Um, I think that Kirkham's art is really good. Sometimes regular human faces feel a little wonky. It's a little cartoony, a little anime-ish, especially John, because, you know, you, you draw kids with bigger eyes in comics. His eyes look like freaking Speed Racer, but it's still really good. This is a, a very solid issue. Um, there's a lot of little details that I like. I think the, the armor that Lacal and Zade wear is really neat. Uh, Lacal's armor specifically has a very kind of 90s Wildstorm feel to it. I'm just glad that they just gave them like non-code names. They just go by their regular alien names. It's not like Blood Sword or Death Blade or something because that would just make me roll my eyes so hard they'd fall out of my head. Um, I like the little details on Lex's suit. I especially like the mechanical arms. They're coming down from the ceiling and tinkering with the suit and Lex's lab. And I don't know. It's just, it's not my favorite comic I've read in a while, but it's really, really solid. Oh, I especially like the last page where we see the image of Lex in his dark side suit surrounded by parademons. That was really good. So that is all I have left to say about this comic book. So I am going to take an ad break and then we will come right back and we will talk about, and of course the app had to shut down on me, <laughs> but we'll be right back to talk about our next comic book. And we're back. And even though I could not remember what we were going to talk about at the end of the last segment, because I am, of course, podcasting professionalism incarnate, we are, in fact, going to be talking about Superwoman number four from November 9th of 2016. And this issue is scripted by Phil Jimenez with pencils by Emanuela Lupicino. Inks are done by Ray McCarthy, colors are by Hi-Fi, and letters are by Rob Lee. The main cover is by Lupicino, McCarty, and Brad Anderson with Phil Jimenez. And the variant is done by Ben Oliver. The main cover is, uh, it's got a blank white background with Lana as Superwoman kneeling down in the middle of a Superman symbol uh, with Superman and Superwoman Lois in shadow all you can the only detail you see of them is their respective s symbols and then their shadow is looming over lana where she's kneeling down and lana has reddish orange energy crackling all around her and it's pretty good and it says the haunting of lana lang the variant cover uh, again has a mostly blank white background it's got lana a superwoman and it's a kind of a close-up you see her from the mid torso up and her eyes are crackling with energy, and her hands are open to either side of her head and slightly forward, and they're crackling with energy. 
And it's also pretty good. Uh, the effect I get is that like she's going to release an energy blast out of her eyes and she's going to maybe somehow enhance it and filter it through energy in her hands, which is pretty neat. I don't love either cover, but they're both good. And I would have happily picked up either one if I was getting this on the stand at the time. Now, before we get into the issue, let's do a bit of recapping. So when New 52 Superman died, he gave off this energy burst and it went, half of it went into Lana and half of it went into New 52 Lois. And they both gained powers. Uh, Lois gained traditional Kryptonian physical powers and Lana gained energy power similar to that of 90s energy Superman. And Lois died shortly thereafter. They both became, became Superwoman. Um, Lois died fighting a female Bizarro clone that I think are being called Bizarrus, a Bizarrus in this one. Um, and Lana is struggling with that. Lana is struggling with anxiety in general and has been taking anxiety medication to help, which has been, which she says has been helping a lot. <clears throat> Excuse me. But she's been keeping that medicine um, uh, secret from John Henry Irons, who she is in a relationship with. Also, um, Lex Luthor's sister, who was believed dead at large, has reemerged. She was either paraplegic or quadriplegic, but she has been given an upgrade through a process that Lex was trying to use to, to heal her. Um, she is, um, I think the implication is that she's insane. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. And she is responsible for the creation of the Bizarruses. And uh, she has multiple of them. She has captured Lex. And she has, I think through his, through his Superman-themed battle armor, disabled use of his legs and trapped him in a in a prison in the basement of LexCorp. And she has also taken on her own version of Lex's battle suit and now refers to herself as Ultra Woman. Uh, so when we open the issue, it appears that Lana is on the Lang family farm. And in New 52 continuity and I'm going to double back around to that about New 52 continuity when we get to the end of this issue. In New 52 continuity, um, Lana's family were also farmers, and Lana grew up on a farm, much like Clark did. And now she is an engineer. She's a genius. She also does, uh, she's a science reporter for the Daily Star, but she is a farmer at heart. And we see her on the family farmhouse. I believe her mom and dad have passed away, and she is, <laughs> one thing I really enjoy, is it, so it starts out with her looking out the front window, out to the driveway, down to the street, and it says, I've always been a morning person, meeting the morning sun, head on, full cup of coffee, the kind that gets you through the day in one cup. I cannot <laughs> wrap my head around that at all. Not about not being a morning, I, I have become a morning person in the last few years, I am, I am worn out by seven o'clock at night. But um, even though I kind of enjoy sleeping in, if I have to get up on time, 
then you know i rolled down the stairs and about 15 minutes later i'm i'm full steam ahead but i didn't start drinking coffee till i was 30. um i mostly drink soda and the reason of that is and sorry i, I like to go on these huge tangents if you're new to the show that half time they don't have anything to do with the comic book but too bad because it's fun <laughs> um as you can tell i've just finished my coffee um <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying myself. Um, but the reason I hated coffee before then is because my family always drink instant. I hate instant coffee. And I thought that's what coffee was. And a friend of mine introduced, at my work at the time introduced me to what I think of as real coffee. And I've been a coffee enthusiast ever since. And I remember when I started out drinking coffee, I could do maybe two cups a day. And I was good by now. I'm the four cup minimum. Mm -mm, there's, and this is a big cup too. <laughs> So I cannot get behind one cup of coffee to get me through there. That's got to be some, that coffee's got to be laced with something strong. That's all I can say. But anyway, we're still on page one of the comic. So Lois, I'm sorry, Lana is dressed in a red button-down shirt uh, with a pair of uh, bluish-gray overalls over it and a pair of, like, cowboy boots. They're like cowboy boots with heels. These are not farm work boots. I'm sorry. This, that's a fashion choice, not a not a work choice. It is a kind of a low wedgie heel. It is actually like a cowboy cowboy boot, but that doesn't that's not like a work boot. Sorry. Um, unless she's gonna go get on a horse and go rustle up some cows or something. But I grew up partly on a farm. <clears throat> but she goes downstairs and she turns around and there's Lois. But it looks like New 52 Lois, because the visual cue to that is she has longish black hair. And our Lois, from the pre-Flashpoint continuity, who is now existing in the post-Flashpoint universe, has shorter brown hair. And Lois is like, you can't be my Lois because she's dead and you're obviously that new Lois who has taken her place and you've got some extensions and a dye job, but you can't fool me. And she is, and she's kind of railing on what she thinks of as new 52 Lois for outing, uh, new 52 Clark's secret identity. And it looks like she actually goes to punch her. And it looks like she's trying to reach forward to grab her by the shoulder with her right hand. And she has her left hand pulled back in a fist, but her right hand goes completely through Lois's body and she panics and she lets out an energy burst which blows out the side of her house and lois is like so you got that out of your system yet and lana reaches out again and her hand goes through lois and she says get back you're one of those bizarros aren't you like the one that killed the real lois how did you find me and there's something interesting in this and it's gonna be part of the problem not problem, but why I don't really love this issue. Spoiler. Um, it, uh, Lana references knowing that pre-Flashpoint Lois and post... I'm sorry, pre-Flashpoint Lois and Superman are married. And she, um, she recently met pre-Flashpoint Lois, our Lois. She's met uh, our Clark before. They met, excuse me, during the death of New 52 Superman. They met briefly 
it was either in the DC Rebirth one shot or the Superman Rebirth kind of uh, prelude to the current eponymous Superman series. And that's where Lana takes our Clark to New 52 Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And, um, but I don't think anywhere he's revealed that, you know, obviously Lana knows that Clark is Superman. Um, that is one holdover from the pre-Flashpoint universe to the New 52. Um, but I don't think they ever mention that they're married. And so, I mean, again, it, it could be something that just happened off panel, or maybe it's a leap of logic, or maybe it's something else. Because um, after they talk for a minute, um, they're just, you know, Lana's saying, you've come to haunt me for eternity. And Lois says, that's a good headline. But then from off panel, somebody says, Aunt Lana. And Lana turns around and she's sitting in a restaurant with John Henry and Natasha, uh, John Henry's niece. And she's like, wait, wait, what's going on? And... It's not really clear at first. The way it came across to me is that there's a time lapse, that she was hanging out at the Lang Farm in Smallville, and then she kind of fugued, or she was having a flashback to that moment. But she is, in fact, sitting at this bar with our nut. Yeah, it's, it's more or less a bar. It's more like a bar that serves food than a real restaurant. And they're sitting around, they're having... They're having a meal, and Lana is very confused. And um, the three of them are talking about how they helped save the city from this huge blackout. And the news is running a story about how Lex disappeared during the blackout. And um, we, we Bibbo is there. Oh, it's the Ace of Clubs, right? Now... We have not seen a whole lot of Bibbo since Rebirth. We saw him briefly in uh, the first arc of the eponymous Superman series where the fight with, um, with the Eradicator takes them to Bibbo's bar by accident. And I think that's the first time Bibbo had been seen since Flashpoint. I don't think he was used... In New 52. If I'm wrong, let me know on Twitter. I, I'm happy to fill in my gaps of ignorance. Oh, by the way, the yard people are starting up their, their weekly thing here at the Fortress of Solitude. So if you hear some yard work in the background, I apologize. But here we have um, Bibbo's daughter, Joshi. And she is a young blonde lady. Kind of looks a little bit like Gwen Stacy. That's an interesting development there. But, um, and we have Natasha mentioning that someone named Stacy hasn't been heard of since the blackout. She's been texting her, and I assume that maybe Natasha and Tracy are dating. I don't know. And that's, that's another thing I want to, that's more of the thing that I want to double back around to at the end of, the, end of this issue. And so um, public support has been growing for Lana as Superwoman, and they're referring to John Henry and Natasha in their armored identity as Lana's super friends, which is 
a little, you know, it's not great, but it's, um, it's okay. Yeah, at least they're getting acknowledgement. It's a little reductive, but I, th I think they deserve more than that. But they've been showing footage of, of Lana and the Steels fighting bad guys. And uh, while they're watching, they see a guy being taken back to jail. Now, a lot of people had broken out of prison. I think it's supposed to be Strikers Island. And one of them is this guy named Clay, who I think, yeah, this is supposed to be John Henry's brother. I don't know anything about this guy. This is Natasha's dad. The fact that he's in jail is why she's been living with John Henry, apparently. And again, that's why I want to double back. Now, during the escape, during the blackout, one of the inmates that had escaped was the Atomic Skull. And that was a big part of what Lana and John Henry and Natasha were doing during the blackout. They were fighting the Atomic Skull. And the reason the Atomic Skull was creating this ruckus is he was trying to draw attention to the fact that the inmates in this prison, the superpowered inmates, were being abused. And the Atomic Skull claimed that the prison, which is a private-run facility run by LexCorp, uh, was being powered by the atomic skull, which is you know inhumane, and, uh, and so as Lana is watching all this, Lois appears behind her again, and uh, uh, Lana is saying the skull said Lex's security team attached him to the power grid to save the prison money, but that seems crass even for Lex. There's more to that story. There's got to be, and Lois, quote unquote, says you're on the right track. I knew you'd be good at this. And Lana's thinking to herself, I'm official, it's official, I'm nuts, I'm full on Looney Tunes. So we go from there to the headquarters in the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit, where um, this guy named Murdoch is has broken free of his restraints and he's attacking the guards and the in the SCU officers. And Murdoch is a savior who I don't know if they did anything with him during New 52 or not. He was uh, a part of 90s Superman continuity. He was this... I don't know how he gained his powers. I don't remember. I don't really like those issues that much, and I just skimmed them. He pretty much gained the power to kind of warp reality around him, and he was a religious nut, and he saw um, he's got this kind of pathological fixation on wires, and he was convinced that Superman was still dead and that this, the long-haired Superman who appeared in the mid-90s and then the energy Superman who appeared in the late-90s were false idols, false prophets. And, you know, Savior says, I am a servant of the source. I am his righteousness. I am his wrath. It's interesting that he refers to, you know, he's, he's very supposed to be like Judeo-Christian religious in the 90s. Here he refers to God as the source, which is really interesting. Um, but they get him under wraps. And the atomic skull is just, you know, standing there watching. He's not helping one or the other. And Maggie Sawyer is there. And she says, Savior here is crazier than you are, skull. And the atomic skull says, technically, religious delusion is most often linked to temporal Olympic overactivity. However, psychotic depression, she goes, never mind. I really like the atomic skull. I think he's a really fun 
character. I think he is at least how he's written in the late 90s and here he's not evil. He's just mentally unwell and he's unfortunately violently mentally unwell. And I've said it before, I think it would be a really neat take like how Clayface was trying to reform around like 2017, 2018. I would like to see the same thing with Atomic Skull. Get him some mental help, mental health help. Have him heal and, you know, give him a reformation arc. I think that would be really neat. But I have to say, as someone who previously worked in pretrial criminal detention, Maggie needs some uh, counseling or training on how to deal with mentally ill inmates. That's not cool. But anyway, so Maggie helps take down Savior, and then Lana shows up, and it looks to like to us, the reader, and to Lana herself, like Lois is standing behind her. And so they get to talking about the atomic skull, and we see the skull in his cell, which isn't like bars, but it's just kind of glass, glassed-in containment area. And um, the Lana's thought dialogue box says she's promised Atomic Skull some leniency in exchange for his help saving the city. She thinks he can help her science police initiative in containment strategies development. So, you know, again, you know, possibility of a reformation arc. Um, but Lana goes and talks to him and we don't really get any dialogue. We just kind of get it from the perspective of her of her inner monologue. And she says, I asked him about the power siphon the prison used to drain his radioactive energy. He says the device was experimental, created by some LexCorp engineer, a prototype of some kind. Then he mentions his ideals, his ideas for humane criminal detention, a hypercube of some sort, one that can be tucked away in slivers of time. So put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, Lana is walking along talking to Maggie and Lana's saying, I'm not sure he's the guy you want inventing devices like that. And Lois is saying, ask her about LexCore. And Lana says, well, I will ask her about LexCore just a minute. And Maggie's like, are you talking to me? And Lana says, sorry, I've been talking to myself a lot lately. And um, so Maggie's saying we have squads of officers at LexCore. There's no sign of his assistant, Mercy Graves, or those clones he said attacked you or... Lex and I'd kind of forgotten that Mercy was in this, and I think I think Mercy's dead, <laughs> straight up, because I I think that the Mercy that we were shown in uh, this series, which I think was an issue two, turned out to be a a bizarreess that transformed itself from looking like Mercy, who appears like she does in uh, Batman versus Superman, a thin Asian woman with glasses um, to a bizarreist. And so from there we go to LexCore and like Maggie said, the cops are searching the building. They can't find him. And it looks from our perspective like the cops are searching the floor right above where Lex is. And it looks like the floor is transparent. But what we're actually realizing is that Lex is in some kind of some kind of time prison. There's an inmate in a cell next to him. It's the head of the kryptonite, man. I know nothing 
about the kryptonite man. I, I did not care for him in the 90s. I don't know anything about him here in the 2000 and uh, in the new 52. That is, and this series really feels more of like a continuation of the new 52 than anything else. But here his head is disembodied and it sends its own tiny little cube. And the kryptonite man is saying, you're in a fourth dimensional time trap, Lex, tucked away in a little tesseract of time. They can't hear you. They can't see you. They don't even exist in the same temporal space. So that is the same thing that the atomic skull was talking about, his idea for more humane inmate housing. So that's interesting. So from there, we go back to Lana being in her farmhouse. And so what we're realizing now is that the whole farmhouse scenario is in Lana's head. And so Lois is seemingly appearing to Lana as a hallucination in real time, but Lana is also having these kind of mental dialogues with Lois in a kind of mental space, which is interesting. And so they are... You know, first, Lon is accusing Lois of being a ghost, and, Lon, and Lois is like, I never said that. And so this goes back and forth a little bit. And Lana says, you're no ghost. You're the guilt and shame and sadness in my brain, all bundled into one blobby thing that looks like Lois, because the universe seems to be keenly invested in torturing me for all eternity. She's like, oh, I'm done with you. I'm done with all my angst. And she closes her eyes. She squints real hard. She opens and goes like, oh, you're still here. I'm doomed. And again, Lois is like, are you done? Because you have work to do. And so uh, they talk for a little bit more about how Lois wanted them to be super women together. Uh, they do have something interesting here. Lana says, isn't that, uh, Lo uh, Lana says, aren't you dead? Isn't that what happens to wi when women like us get power, ascension, insanity, and oblivion? Which is a really great point, especially pointing towards older comics. The biggest example I can think of being Jean Grey as the Phoenix in the late 70s and like 1980, who also had red hair and gained tremendous power, went insane, was manipulated by a guy, and then seemingly died, or at least originally died and was retconned to be something else. But, you know, that's a that's a sad trope is that the you know, it's this idea that, yeah, women can get power, but they can't handle it. And so that's that's really clever of Jimenez to come back around and bring that up. And so um, they're talking about Lana's anxiety and how she's taking these anxiety pills and um, she won't apologize for taking them. Good for her, you know. People who have, you know, need medication to deal with a mental illness should take their medication. But she's hiding it from John Henry, like I said. And she says the reason that she's hiding them is because she's afraid that she would tell him that the pills help her more than he does. Now, that is, that is in my opinion, that's completely on Lana for feeling that way. I, well... Let me put it this way. She's afraid of what John Henry would think. I personally believe John Henry could, doesn't have such a big ego that he would be offended that, he, that Lana needs pills to deal with her problems and that just having a nice, caring boyfriend is good enough. You know, 
Um, if you care about your partner, you want them to be healthy and a caring partner wouldn't look down on you for getting the help that you need. But I, on one hand, I feel like that's on Lana for feeling that way. But given the fact that Lana is dealing with anxiety, I can see how her brain is kind of messing with her in this case. You know, when you have anxiety, when you have depression, your brain tells you a lot of things that aren't necessarily good for you or accurate. But in real time, we see that Lana is at Steelworks with John Henry, and she's in this big science tube, and he's running all kinds of tests on her. And he's saying he's run the test three times, there's no change in diagnosis, and that her powers are killing her. She's going to overload, and she's going to die like Lois did. But Lana does not accept that. She gets out of the science tube, and she checks the results herself, and um, she says that the machine suggests an anomaly, that the machine can't tell the difference between a tumor and a general infection. Uh, and she said, you know, she gives him a hug and says, I'm not ready to die. But as, and she's like, it's, it wasn't the fight with the Bizarrus that killed Lois, it was her own powers. So Lana could really die at any moment when she uses her powers. Now, as she's talking to John, this magic portal opens up and this girl runs out and it's Tracy 13. And this is where the book kind of fell apart for me. This is completely left field. I don't know a lot about Tracy 13. I know she's a magic user. I think she was the bartender at the, the, the bar that Nightmaster ran that Detective Chimp inherited. I think she was a member of the Shadow Pact pre-Flashpoint. I always get her confused with Black Alice. I don't know anything about her, but I assume she's the Tracy that Natasha was talking about. I think it's implied that they're dating. Um, but Tracy runs out of this portal and she drops to the ground and she says, the city, Metropolis, it's going to die. And we get this back and forth now between Lana's mental space at the farmhouse and them being in real time at Steelworks. And so as Lois and Lana are talking inside the mental space farmhouse, she opens the curtains and outside, instead of seeing the front yard, she sees Lex's like super tech battleship, the Gestalt sitting in uh, a dock. And as she's seeing this, she thinks Lana, no, I'm sorry, she thinks Lena, excuse me, and her eyes crackle with energy. And again, I don't know where she's getting that from. So maybe it's explained later. I don't know. Um, but, okay, so this is this is where it gets confusing. We go from there to the actual Gestalt, and we see uh, Mercy walking along the dock, and she's got two Bizarruses with her, and I think Mercy transforms into a Bizarrus, and the Bizarruses smash all the LexCorp people, and Lena comes out in her Ultra Woman armor, and I talked about this last time. It's a neat design, because it kind of looks like a Lex suit, only it's much bigger, and I think Lena's... I think the torso of the suit covers 
uh, Lena's entire upper half of her body, including her head. And then her head is a, like a holographic projection on top of the suit and it's floating right above the suit. And it's a really cool design. And um, so maybe what's happening is that Lana is seeing what's going on in real time somehow inside of her mental scape. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, like I said, it's, it's very confusing. But while all this is going on in real time, Tracy at Steelworks is saying, uh, my magics feed off cities. They give me power. They talk to me and tell me their secrets. It was all planned from the beginning. It was all to tear down Lex's reputation to distract everyone. Okay, so maybe this makes a little more sense now. So as they're talking about this, in real time, uh, Lana is realizing that Tracy's talking about Lena. And so maybe that's where she's getting this idea of Lena at the Gestalt in her headscape. I don't know. But anyway, in real time, at the Gestalt, Lena reaches out her hand and it looks like she telekinetically lifts the entire gestalt up out of the water. So I don't know if she's using telekinesis or some kind of magnetic energy or something, but it's hovering over the city and it's glowing. And we see a close up of Lena's face where she, her holographic face where she's smiling malevolently. And Tracy's saying that ship, it's much more than we thought it was. She's going to use it to take Metropolis apart brick by brick. And you don't even want to know what she's going to do to the people. And the only thing that can stop her is Superwoman. And Lana says, oh, squiggly bad words. I'm just going to say, oh, crap. So, again, I don't really understand what's going on. And I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and say all will be explained later. Because I grew up reading, like, late 80s Claremont, where he would start a plot thread that just stopped and come back to it a few issues down the road and you just had to bear with it and you know I love Morrison where things don't always make sense but you just kind of have to hold on and enjoy the ride and figure it out later but my problem is like I said this book feels more like an extension of the new 52 than anything else and I don't feel like it's a good jumping on point for new readers, you know, readers like me who haven't, who've read very little of the new 52. Like I'm only up to like issue 10 of action comics, maybe issue, excuse me, issue 11. So I don't know much about John Henry and Lana's relationship. I don't really know what's going on with Natasha. I don't know what the deal is with Tracy 13. I assume that she was a supporting cast member and they're a little circle of things there. But, and I like Jimenez's writing in general, but I feel like he's not giving newish readers enough to go by. If you've been reading this issue from the beginning, there's still some information that you're lacking. And so I feel like Tracy 13 coming out of nowhere was a little, um, was a little jarring and I don't really, I can't really tell what's going on, like I said, between what matches up with Lana's mindscape versus what's going on in real time with the Gascalt and with Lena and where 
inside her headscape she's getting information about Lena versus where she's getting it in real time. Because it's written it, and it's shown as she makes the intuitive leap of logic about Lena before Tracy tells her in real time. And so I don't know if it's just supposed to be implied or what. Um, now, that being said, I really, really like Lupacino's art in this one. It looks stunning. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I like Jimenez's pencils on the previous issues, but Emmanuel Lupacino's work is fantastic. I have no problem with the art at all. I feel like it's just how the the story is scripted around the art is where I'm finding fault to it. And I, I don't, I hate to go on about not liking something, but I want to explain why I didn't like it. So that at least put it in a context and it's not just like, well, I don't like it just because. So not a huge fan of this issue. I'm hoping it's, it makes more sense in, uh, in issue five. Maybe those questions I have will be answered. I hope they are. If they're not, I'm going to be disappointed. And I know this series didn't go on a super long time. It lasted less than two years. And if that's the case, I think I can kind of maybe see why. It's not anything to do with the characters. I think the characters are really interesting. And I think the theme of this book so far is dealing with mental illness. Because we have Lana struggling with her mental illness. We have the atomic skull who suffers from a form of delusion. We've seen Savior, who also suffers from a form of mental delusion. We see Maggie Sawyer being insensitive about mental illness. Um, and so I like that. I think that's really cool and I think that's really smart. But I hope things in, pre, in subsequent issues flow a little more smoothly. And I, I think that summarizes what, what I'm not pleased about this one. It's just it doesn't have a very good flow to it. But that's it. I don't want to be any more negative than that. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And I will come back in just a minute and we'll wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 35 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk about these comics as much as I enjoyed talking about them. If you enjoy what I'm doing here on the main show, and if you'd like to support it, then I would invite you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope, where I talk about my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories. I began with the Pocket Universe Superboy Saga from 1987, and I just wrapped up the uh, Day of the Krypton Man story arc from 1990. <clears throat> Excuse me. And very shortly, I'll be starting on the two-parter that goes into the fate of the crew of the space shuttle Excalibur. And those of you that are fans of early 90s Superman will know that that is a big, big deal. And again, I put out episodes every week over there on the Patreon. Uh, so that comes out to less than a dollar an episode. So again, if you like the show and you want to support it, that would be a great way to do it. Another great way to support the show would be give me a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. That helps boost me up in the algorithms. And you can also visit me on Twitter at About Superman, where I talk about Superman many, many times a day. 
and I usually do so by giving my thoughts on whatever uh, Superman comics I'm reading at the time. I talk about some stuff from the 80s. I talk about some stuff from the late 90s, the late 2000s, a little bit of the new 52 here and there, and I'm just about to start again on 2019. So uh, if you want to check that out, that would be a great thing, uh, something that I would enjoy immensely if you'd follow me there. Next episode, I'm going to get in the Legion time bubble and head back to the far, far future of a few weeks ago and review uh, Batman Superman World's Finest number five. So it is going to be somewhat of a shorter episode, but it should be a lot of fun anyway. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.